Amen. It's good to see everybody today and so thankful that you guys are here to worship with us. If you call Agape home and many today who are visitors, thank you for being with us. If you left your sunglasses on the preaching podium, I'll have them for you after the service. A um, couple of things. Uh, one, the Bible tells us that all matters are, uh, are confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I found it very interesting this morning that during that first song, excuse me, the second song, we were singing about the name of Jesus and the power of, of the name of Jesus to set us free and to take back areas that the enemy has taken from us that Rob, during that song, walked up to me and gave me a hug and he just said, I, I just want you to know that this, I feel like this song is meaningful today and prophetic for, for the, this gathering and this church and um, that uh, you know, it, it is something that we need to listen to. Uh, and then after the prayer time, Sam went back into the song, which was not the plan, and said almost the exact same thing. So I just want to mention that if this morning, as Sam was talking and pointing us back to that song and the power of the name of Jesus to break strongholds and to set, to set us free, if that stirred something in you and you felt like that was from the Lord, uh, I just want to say that was confirmed, I believe, by multiple people this morning. And uh, so receive that and, and pray into that. I also want to say today that um, part of what we believe, uh, part of worship and what we believe here is that we give. And so if you give to the Lord as part of worship, thank you for that. We do believe all believers should should pray and consider uh, the call to give. And if you would like to give this morning to this church and this ministry, there's an offering box in the back between the double doors. You're welcome to, uh, to leave an offering there or you can give over our church app as well. And thank you in advance for your gifts. May the Lord bless you in those. Hopefully you picked up one of the worship guides this morning. Um, if you are a note taker in just a moment, have an opportunity to take some notes as we continue in this series that we are doing on prayer called House of Prayer. This is the third week in this series. As we've been going through this series, I have referenced several theologians who have written on the subject of prayer, including A.W. Tozer, J.C. Ryle and Martin Lloyd-Jones. And this morning, I want to go back to Ryle's booklet, J.C. Ryle's booklet that I mentioned week one called A Call to Prayer. It's actually in our resource library in the back if you'd like to read that little booklet. But J.C. Ryle wrote this, Never be surprised if you hear ministers of the gospel dwelling much on the importance of prayer. This is the point we want to bring to you. We want to know that you pray. Your views of doctrine may be correct. Your love of the true church may be warm and unmistakable. But still, all of this may be nothing more than head knowledge and a party spirit. We want to know whether or not you are actually acquainted with the throne of grace. And whether you can speak to God as well as speak about God. I want us all in this church to be able to speak to God from our heart. Not just to repeat phrases and words that we have heard. Jesus tells us we're not, we're not heard by God because of our many words or because we're eloquent in our prayers. 
I want us to speak to God from our heart. And I, I have had to resign myself to the fact that in two months, which is the plan for this series, we're not going to be able to touch on every facet of prayer. The subject is, is, is just too great for that. But our aim in spending time talking about prayer is to ask the Spirit to move our minds and our wills to the place of embracing that yes, we must pray. That it is a critical discipline in the Christian life. But also, our aim is not just that we would embrace that we need to pray, but that we would grow to love to pray. That we would delight in prayer. You all have things that you delight in. Nobody has to urge you to do those things. Your mind and your will just goes to that place. You love to do it. Prayer, in a biblical way, is that type of discipline that we would love to pray. That's our aim in this series. I do a couple of reminders of where we've been so far. If you are a note taker, reminders from this series. We started the series with a message called present. That's the first blank there, present. Which put before us the highest purpose of prayer which is to be present with God, to connect with our Father relationally. Now, we're going to talk about other reasons you pray. As a matter of fact, next week we're going to talk about making requests known to God and what that looks like in Scripture. But making requests known is not the primary and highest purpose of prayer. The highest purpose of prayer is to be with your Father. The foundational reason for praying is to experience the reality of Jesus' promise, I am with you always. You experience that through prayer. And it is Jesus who, when we call out to Him, Jesus will gladly do a spiritual work. In my notes, I put renovation in our hearts to create in us the desire to be near God. So if you say, I know I should pray, but I really just don't love to pray, The hope is Jesus. Ask Him to give you a love for being with your Father in prayer. And I believe you can trust that Jesus will answer that. Last week our message was called Assurance. We're doing one word titles for these sermons to try to help us. Last week it was called Assurance. Hebrews 4 teaches that if we have saving faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, if we trust in Jesus to forgive us of our sins, then we have the assurance that God will unconditionally receive us when we draw near to Him. Will God really hear me when I pray? In Christ, the resounding answer is yes. But what about my week? And what about what I've struggled with? And what about these temptations? The answer is unconditionally in Christ God receives you when you draw near Him in prayer. If you doubt that, if you doubt God accepts you when you pray, you probably won't pray. So it is vitally important for you to have the assurance that God will receive you. Jesus makes the unworthy worthy. And your sin and your weakness need not cause you to be reluctant to reach out to God. In Christ, you go boldly to the throne. Not brashly, not arrogantly, not casually. 
but with confidence and boldness you go before the throne, knowing God will hear you. And we talked about last week how your confidence in prayer can grow the more you join your prayers to the Word of God. Let God's Word guard your prayers to keep you from error, guide your prayers to show you what to pray for, and empower your prayers when you pray. Jesus gave astounding promises. If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. How can that promise be? Because when God's Word is in you, it transforms you. And you pray God's will and God hears and He answers. So moving forward today, even as we may desire to be present with God, and I I hope you do and I hope you will struggle with that desire asking Christ for it, even as you may have assurance that He will hear you, and I hope you have that assurance and receive it, but even then we will still face challenges when we try to pray. We will still face difficulties. One more Ryle quote for us in your notes. When it comes to these difficulties we face in prayer, there is everything on God's part to make prayer easy if men will only attempt it. All things are ready on His side. Every objection is anticipated. Every difficulty is provided for. There is no excuse left for the prayerless man. That is a challenging statement. But I think Ryle has backing from Scripture, which is why I put the quote in there. Men are fallible, and what they teach are fallible, but the Word of God is not. And I believe from Scripture we can know that God has made all things ready for me to pray. That God has anticipated every objection that I might give Him for why I don't pray. And that He has nullified every excuse that I might make. Philippians 4.19 gives us this promise. God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, the immediate context, context of that passage is that God provides for us materially and physically. And that when we give, He will provide so that we have more to give with. But the argument I would make to you, what I think is in Scripture, is that the reason we know for sure that God will provide for the lesser needs that we have, material needs and physical needs, is because He has provided for the greatest need any of us have, and that is to have unity and communion with Him through faith in Jesus, because He's overcome our sin. And so if Jesus has overcome our greatest need, then He gives us all that we need. And therefore, if He gives us all that we need, you and I can be sure that every difficulty that we face in this weakened bodily form when we try to pray, God will supply those needs. Every excuse that comes to our mind. I'm too tired. I don't know what to say. I don't have time. Every objection is met in God's Word. And He provides for all of it if we will attempt to pray. And so the message today is entitled, Help. And it is explained in this life truth 
in your handout if you're a note taker. God provides sufficient help to overcome every kind of weakness that would keep us from His presence in prayer. God provides sufficient help to overcome every kind of weakness that would keep us from His presence in prayer. Which is how Ryle said, there's no excuse left for a prayerless man. Our sermon text today is Romans 8. Our whole service today is kind of surrounding Romans 8. We started with it. We're continuing with it in in the sermon text. Romans 8 is an incredible chapter, rich with reminders of the grace of God that is ours through the person of the Holy Spirit. And I would encourage you to spend some time in this upcoming week to read Romans 8 and to look for the grace of the Holy Spirit that is mentioned to us in Romans 8. I will remind you that Orthodox Christian understanding is that the Bible clearly shows us there is one God. And that God exists eternally in three persons. God the Father who planned our salvation. God the Son who has secured our salvation. And God the Spirit who is sent to believers by both the Father and the Son to accomplish the work of salvation in us. And to give us all the various blessings of salvation. Every blessing, every grace that you see in the Bible that belongs to a Christ follower is accomplished in your life by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Who, as Nick pointed out earlier, does not live in a building anymore. Does not live in a tent anymore. He lives in us. He lives in believers. In the people of God. And so before we move into our main verse today, which is verse 26, I want to mention some of the works of the Holy Spirit that we can celebrate out of Romans 8. And if you read this chapter this week on your own, you will see these and maybe more, but I'm going to go through a list of what we see. The grace of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8. I'm going to go rather quickly. So I hope you will... Look at it on your own, and if you want my notes, you can text me or email me, and I'll send them to you. Here's some of the grace that we see regarding the Holy Spirit in Romans 8. The Spirit of God dwells in you and joins you to Christ and sets you free from the power of sin. Chapter 8, verse 2 and 9. The Spirit of God advances your sanctification by empowering you to put to death sin in your body. Romans 8.13 The Spirit of God takes the good and right demands of God's Word and helps you to gladly submit to them. Romans 8 verses 4 and 7 The Spirit of God helps you to have a godly mindset and to pursue things that please God with your will and your emotions. Chapter 8 verses 5 and 8 The Spirit of God gives you life And He gives you peace. Chapter 8, verse 6. The Spirit of God will one day, at the direction of the Father, raise you from physical death to a brand new life with a resurrected body just as He did Jesus Christ. Chapter 8, verse 11. The Spirit of God leads you where you should go, tells you what you should do, 
informs how you act and how you react, how you think and how you feel. Chapter 8, verse 14. The Spirit of God secures your adoption into the family of God, which is a legal term. And He testifies to your heart that you belong to God. If you know in your heart that you are a child of God, it is because the Holy Spirit testifies that to you. And from your heart, it is the Holy Spirit alone who allows you to cry out with sincerity, Abba, Father. Chapter 8, verse 15, which is a term of warm affection. And all of these promises lead us to verse 26, which is this, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Underline that, circle that, highlight that, Keep that in your mind. It is the general truth of Romans 8. It is the general truth of all of the New Testament. The Holy Spirit helps you in your weakness. Every time you are aware of your weaknesses, whether they are physical or mental or emotional, whatever they may be, when they are spiritual, every weakness you have, the Holy Spirit will help you in that weakness. And Paul applies this in Romans 8 very specifically when he goes on to say, in your notes, the Spirit of God helps us when we are weak in prayer. The Spirit of God helps us when we are weak in prayer. I have several ways that are listed in your notes of how I think the Spirit does this. How the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses when we pray. And the first one of these points is the primary one today and the the main one that we're going to dwell on. And it is this. The Spirit of God helps us when we're weak in prayer. He prays for us when we do not know what to pray. The Spirit helps us when we're weak in prayer because He prays for us when we don't know what to pray. I want you to let that sink in for a moment. The Bible is telling you that the Spirit of God that was hovering over the confusion and chaos at the opening of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, that Spirit prays for you. By name. Not a general prayer over all the world, but He dwells in you. And part of what He does dwelling in you is praise for you. I I love opportunities to point out when I see ways to refute the false notion where some people say, Ultimately, all world religions are the same. Ultimately, every religion in the world is alike. Find another religion in the world that teaches you that God sends God to intercede for you in your trials. That is mind-blowing. And something that you can only receive in faith. That God sends the Spirit of God to pray for you in your trials. 
And when does the Spirit do this and how does He do it? And that's what Paul addresses in Romans 8. So look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought or as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When does the Spirit pray for us? When we don't know what to pray for. When we don't know what we should pray for. I want you to remember if you were here last week, last week we talked about how John wrote in one of his letters, that if we ask anything according to God's will, He will hear us. And if He hears us, then we know He will give us what we are asking for. And so we said last week, the Word of God guides our prayers. The Word of God shows us the will of God and then leads us to pray for that. So when you see that it is God's will for you to be faithful to your spouse... When you see that it is God's will for you to be a sacrificially giving person, when you see that it is God's will for you to forgive others, and you pray that, God, help me to be faithful, help me to give, help me to forgive others, then you can get up and you can go and put forth effort in being faithful and giving and forgiving, and you can do that knowing God has heard you and He is answering you without any shadow of a doubt. He is helping you to be faithful. He is helping you to forgive. He will accomplish His will as you pray it. But what about times when you are faced with a circumstance and a choice and a situation where you simply do not know what you should pray? You can pull some principles out of the Word, but there's not a verse that speaks directly to what you are facing. And Paul's comfort in Romans 8 is, the Holy Spirit does know the will of God, and He prays for you. See that in verse 27? He who searches hearts, which is God the Father, knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When you don't know what to pray for, the Spirit prays for you. Now, the application of that is not, well, I don't know God's will, so I just won't pray. The Spirit will pray. It's not the proper application of that. As a matter of fact, I think how how the Holy Spirit intercedes for us is He prays while we're praying. So let me show you this. Notice Paul says, here's the how. The when, when does he pray for you when you don't know what to pray for? Here's the how. With groanings too deep for words. Now, before I get to what that means, let me take just a very quick side road, and it will be quick, and let me tell you what I don't think that means. Some people teach that what this verse is referring to is what is called praying in tongues. That when they don't know what to pray for, the Spirit of God will empower them to pray in an unknown language, in tongues, and that is what it means that the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Let me tell you that I believe in spiritual gifts. I believe even in the mysterious ones. I am not convinced by the biblical arguments, and I've heard many, 
that miraculous gifts have ceased. I do not think we control miraculous gifts. I think the Spirit does. And I think they should be used in the manner that the Bible shows us they should be used. And I don't think this is an area that believers should separate over. So if you believe in all the miraculous gifts for the day, you have a brother or sister who doesn't, I don't think we should separate over that. But I will tell you, I simply don't think those arguments are valid. And honestly, I think they are somewhat fairly weak biblically. So I I say that to tell you I'm not someone who doesn't affirm praying in tongues. I think that there is a gift of praying in an unknown language. And is that mysterious? Absolutely. But if God just did things that were logical to us, that brings Him down to our level rather than us going to His. God can do whatever He chooses to do. He is God. But here's why I don't think that's what's being talked about here. I think there's many reasons. I'm going to give you one. Paul tells us in Corinthians, not every believer will pray in tongues. He says that is not a gift. That is not something every believer will do. In Romans 8, this is something the Spirit does for every believer. Every believer. Not just some. Therefore, this intercession, I do not believe, is praying in tongues. I believe it is something different. So how does it work? If you go back a few verses in Romans 8 to verse 23, Paul has just made the case that all of creation is groaning. And he furthermore says that we, the people of God, are groaning. And that we are groaning inwardly as we await for the time of redemption. So all of creation is groaning under the weight of sin and its effects. And you in your life in some way groan under the effect of sin in this world. When do you groan? When do you have that inward groaning over this life? Isn't it Isn't it when you're frustrated? Isn't it when you're deeply sorrowful? Isn't it when you're tired? Isn't it when you're confused and bewildered? Why do I keep doing this? Why do these people keep doing this? Why is life this way? You groan. Paul says all of creation does that. We're waiting for the day, Sam mentioned earlier, when we see Jesus and the groaning is done. And that day is coming. But until then, we groan. We groan dealing with trials in this fallen world. And in verse 28, there are times when those groanings are so deep, there are no words that are happening. We can't speak it. We can't even express how we're feeling. And Paul says, here's your comfort. The Holy Spirit will come and pray for you. When you are so worn down and you are so weak over the difficulties of this life that you do not have words to pray, 
And maybe all you can do is sit silently somewhere before God. Or maybe all you can do is cry before God. Or sing before God. Or say some type of bumbling, stumbling prayer to God. The Holy Spirit mixes your groanings with His intercessions on your behalf. And He prays for you according to the will of God. In such a way that if you read this text that it is the Spirit who is groaning, He is groaning on your behalf. But He is not groaning in the way that you do. You groan in confusion of not knowing what to pray. He knows exactly what to pray. Because He knows the will of God for you in that moment. And so you can be at rest. And rest in this. That when you find yourself in those frustrating, angry, sorrowful, confusing, bewildering times, what God can do for you and what God will do for you is not dependent on what you can come up with to pray in that moment. Because the Spirit of God is praying for you. Which is why immediately after this you get verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purposes. The Spirit of God prays for you in such a way that that situation, those groanings, will work out for the glory of Christ and for your ultimate good. Church, I can't create affection in myself. I can't create it in you. But we should be amazed at our God who prays for us. And if we are not stirred by the truth, it is a point of confession for us. God, help me. Because this is amazing what He does for His people. Now, there are other ways in which the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And I don't have time to deal with these others as I did that one. As a matter of fact, I... I, Those of you go to Agape, you know we do a church podcast here. So I did a podcast episode that dives into these next points. It should be released tomorrow. It'll be on the website or our church app. So I'm going to mention them briefly, but I'm not going to spend time diving into them. We don't can't do that today. But if you're interested in hearing these expressed more thoroughly, then you can check that podcast episode out as we go into them. But let's mention them. The Spirit of God helps us when we are weak in prayer. He prays for us when we don't know what to pray. Secondly, He gives us insights into life and Scripture so that we can understand God's will more clearly. He gives us insight into life and Scripture so that we can understand God's will more clearly. The Holy Spirit teaches us all truth from the Bible. And the Spirit reveals to us. He gives us discernment into our lives and into our situations around us so that we understand and can grow in how we should pray. Number three, He gives us impulses to pray at just the right time. He gives us urges or impulses to pray at just the right time. We quoted 
Martin Lloyd-Jones last week that we should always respond to every impulse to pray. Every single one of us in this room, we have met someone, they have expressed to us something going on in, in their life, we have said, I'm going to pray for you about that, and we have walked away with good intentions and completely forgot to pray. But the Spirit of God will urge us and remind us to pray, and we should yield to those moments. As a matter of fact, if you yield to those moments, you might find reaching out to someone in text or a phone call to say, hey, I was praying for you today. I was praying for this. And you may experience where that person says, you will not believe what was happening in my day when you sent this. You may have experienced that yourself before, where someone told you, I'm praying for you, and here's what I'm praying for you about. And you realize, oh, wow. That was God. Number four, the Spirit of God gives us encouragement to persevere when we want to give up in prayer. He gives us encouragement to persevere when we want to give up. All of us in this room, I imagine, have had the experience. We may be in that place right now where we've been praying for something and praying for something and praying for something. And honestly, we just want to give up. And the Spirit of God will encourage us and help us to persevere and keep praying. And then the last one I, I, is this. He gives us strength when we are weak for or from praying. He gives us strength when we are weak for or from praying. Let me say this about giving us strength when we are weak for praying. I think there is good scriptural reason to believe the Spirit of God will give you strength and life in your mortal body. We know that He strengthens us in our inner person. I believe there's good scriptural reason to believe that He will also strengthen us physically to serve God. 1 Peter 4.11 says that outright. And part of serving God is praying for others. So I believe that when you are weak, you feel like you're too tired to get up early or go to bed late or... To pray, and if, if I do those things, then I'm going to be tired throughout the day. I think God will give us strength to be able to pray. But I also believe that He strengthens us when we engage in prayer and when we give ourselves to it. There is a type of weakness that comes from praying. There's a type of weakness that comes from being filled by the Spirit to serve God and and then serving Him, and, and, and then after that, there's a weakness that comes. And I think that God helps us in that weakness. In particular here, I'm thinking of voluntary weakness for the purpose of prayer. When we choose to do something that weakens our bodies physically so that we might pray. And one of the things that the Bible shows us is something called fasting. Fasting is when we voluntarily deprive ourselves or go for a period of time without eating for the purpose of pursuing God and praying. Now, there are many people who fast different things and so they go into a period of fasting and they may give up something that they would normally do in their life. Sometimes I hear people talking about this around Lent. Um, leading into Easter, what are you giving up for Lent? 
And so somebody might say, well, I'm giving up playing golf or I'm giving up video games or you know, I'm giving up candy or something like that. And, and I'm, I'm not saying those things are not profitable or should not be done. I don't think those things should be done because we are afraid to fast food. Not fast food, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Sometimes there is a medical condition where you can't fast from food. Hunger is not one of them. And I'm bringing this up because I do believe the Bible shows us that when we weaken ourselves in a voluntary way to pray, that the Spirit will help us in that weakness and give us great spiritual benefit. In September, we are going to be focused on corporate prayer as a church. We've been doing this every September since 2018, where we spend several weeks in September praying together specifically for our church and our community. You'll have a calendar as a family every day with a scripture passage and a particular prayer to pray for Agape and for our community. This year, we are going to ask you, as the Lord leads you, to fast as part of that month of prayer. I'm not going to tell you what that should look like. Don't believe that is my place to do so. Just as God, excuse me, just as Jesus said, you shouldn't pray to be seen before men. Jesus said you shouldn't fast to be seen before men. He said you should do everything you can to cover that up, not make a big deal of it. But we're going to ask you to consider fasting in some way as the Lord leads as part of our prayer, corporate prayer in September as a church. And we're going to do that believing that God will physically strengthen us, but give us spiritual benefit as we fast and pray. We'll talk more about that as we get closer in the next couple of weeks. If you have questions about fasting, you can come and ask me. We'll talk about those. But we're going to give you some more resources as we get a little bit closer. But I wanted to spend a moment this morning and present that to you. I do believe Jesus modeled fasting. And I do believe he mentioned his expectations that his followers would fast and pray as they look for the kingdom to come. And I look forward to doing that with you in September. Agape, God is for you. Paul goes on to say that in Romans 8. If God is for you, which He is, who can be against you? God is for you. He is for you to the degree that He has ordained His Spirit to help you pray when you are weak in prayer. When you don't know what to pray for, or when you are suffering from some other kind of weakness, the Holy Spirit will strengthen you and even pray for you. God is for you. When you're weak, when you're weary, when you're confused, when you're frustrated, He is for you. Don't draw away from Him in those moments. Don't draw away from His church in those moments. Someone, I was having a conversation with someone last night, and they were telling me about a family member who they they don't go to church. They're a believer. They don't go to church because they rightly say Jesus is in all of us. And He is. 
So we don't go to a building to find Jesus. That is absolutely true. But every picture of the family of God from the beginning all the way through is the people of God gather for the worship and the participation in the body of Christ. And the amazing thing is all of us as the house of God, with the Spirit of God in us, draw into one congregation and become a household of God and a household of prayer where we serve and participate with one another. And it's a joy to get to do that. And the Spirit of God helps us in doing that. And church, we can trust that the Spirit helps us in all of our weaknesses, including in our weaknesses of loving one another well. He helps us to pray. This morning, we have the opportunity to reflect on the goodness of God and to do so in the taking of the Lord's Supper. Christianity, I think, is a continual lesson in the grace of God. It's a continual lesson in the goodness of God. Normally, we get to this point and we would respond to Scripture through prayer and through worship and through ministry to one another. Today, we're primarily going to respond to God's Word through the taking of the Lord's Supper. So I want to address what we're doing for a moment in this meal, what this is about. And then I'm going to give you some time to personally reflect and pray before we take this meal together. 1 Corinthians 11 is one of the passages that instructs us to take this meal together as a church. The normative practice is you do this in the context of a church. I would not oppose taking communion as the people of God to someone who is unable to join with a family of faith or a nursing home or or who is sick in some way, Um, or in situations where you're on a mission field or you're cut off from the body of Christ. But the normative picture and practice of the Lord's Supper in the New Testament is we take it together as a family. Not divided, but together as a church. And the basis of the meal is very simple. It's not elegant. It's not complicated. It is a piece of bread and, depending on your tradition, wine or juice. This is juice, just so you know. There are two things that we are doing according to 1 Corinthians 11 when we take this meal. One of them is we're remembering. There should be an effort on your part to remember Christ to think about Him. There was a real man named Jesus who lived and performed miracles and was murdered on a cross and rose again. That is a historical fact that that happened. And we are called to remember that. And God designed that when we eat bread in this supper, we recall to our minds that that person of Jesus had a physical body and and that body was torn and crushed. And then when we drink the juice, we are called to remember that the reason He was slashed and stabbed to bleed 
was that the judgment against anyone who sins is death. And Jesus died accepting our punishment. Raising His hand and saying, I'll take their place. David McConnell is deserving of death for his sin. Period. And Jesus said, I will take that death on His behalf. And if He believes in me, one day, although He will die, He will live again in a physically resurrected body for all time. That is what we're remembering. If you can say that about your life personally, that is what you are remembering when you take this meal. The other thing that 1 Corinthians 11 says that we are doing when we take this meal is we're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. This is a form of preaching. This is a form of proclamation. When we gather in this room, we are proclaiming the death of Jesus on behalf of sinners. And that is why this meal is intended for believers. It is intended for those who are part of the family of faith. I would say to you this morning pastorally that if you are in this room and you have not confessed Christ as your Savior, now is not the time to take this meal. But what it is the time to do is think upon Jesus and look at this preaching of His body and His blood broken and shed for you and know that He offers you salvation from death. He offers you life eternal. And while today may not be the first time for you to take this meal, today could be your day to come to know Jesus and receive Him as your Savior. And my encouragement to you is to look and reflect and pray. And if you don't know where you stand with Jesus, please, before you leave this building today, would you come and talk to me? Would you come talk to Nick, one of our leaders? We're not going to put you in front of anybody. We're just going to talk. And we'll make time this week to talk with you about what God is doing in your life. But if you are a believer, then we proclaim this meal together. We proclaim His death and His resurrection. Before we pray and take the meal, let me say that I think there are two errors that we can make when we take the Lord's Supper according to 1 Corinthians 11. One of them is to be afraid to take it. And one of them is to be too casual in taking it. 1 Corinthians 11 gives people pause because it says that there are those in the church who were so callously taking the Lord's Supper that they were suffering consequences from that, even physical consequences. Some people have looked at that. Some preachers have presented this in such a way that people have become afraid to take the Lord's Supper. When the reality is that this is a joyous celebration Even though it's solemn in remembering Christ, it's a joyous celebration for what He has done. We should not be afraid. 
But we also should not be casual and callous. We should take it seriously. Here is my pastoral counsel to you. If God has spoken to you about a sin in your life, and you know that, He has called you to repent. And to this point, as a believer, you are refusing to repent of that sin. Then I would pray during this meal. I I wouldn't celebrate the forgiveness of sin if I am knowingly rebelling against God in some area of my life. But if you are looking to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you're dealing with temptation every single day, that is the human experience. And dealing with temptation and struggling with it in Christ is not a reason to be afraid to take the Lord's Supper. You're not called to be perfectly holy to take this or you would never take it in this life. So don't be afraid to take the Lord's Supper. But be serious that if you know God is talking to you about something, listen and answer and respond to what He's saying. That's my counsel to you today. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask in the sound booth if you guys bring the lights down. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to play a song, worship song. As that song is playing, I would invite you to do two things. Number one, if you did not pick up a communion element on your way in, and you intend to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment, they are on the back table, and during that time you can go and pick up one of the elements. Secondly, as this worship song is playing, I want to invite you to reflect on the goodness of God. Reflect on His goodness toward you in salvation. Reflect on His goodness toward you in giving you help every day in your weaknesses. And after we've reflected on this together and prayed Where you are, I will come back up and I'm going to lead us through taking this meal together. Father, I thank You for Your grace. God, You call us into Your presence to be with You and You to be with us. And You give us the gift of prayer that we can be present with You. And God, You assure us that when we believe in Jesus, we are received. We are never rejected or put to shame. Father, I imagine people in this room are like me. If if they've been a believer for a while, they can remember those times where they were lost. God, nothing makes any sense in my life that I'm standing here and proclaiming Your goodness, that I am even a believer other than You pursued me in Your love. Because God, I was lost and determined to live in this life by my pleasures. And You rescued me from that. And I pray that every person in this room that can give the testimony of Your goodness of salvation, that You will well up in them love and affection for You and Your presence. And that You would make us as a church, as a body of believers, a household of prayer. Where we know to pray, but we delight in praying. And God, I thank You that when we find it difficult to pray, when we are weak in prayer, You don't leave us alone. You don't shame us. You don't tell us, try harder. You send Your Spirit. And Your Spirit not only helps us in our weakness, but Your Spirit prays for us. Father, would You please intercede for this church? Would You please intercede for Agape? 
This church exists, God. The only, God, the only reason this church exists is because of your goodness. God, even during the pandemic, many churches closed their doors. Father, your grace was that this church grew. It has nothing to do, God, with any leader. It is your work. You chose to do that. You have chosen to be kind to us. Father, let us not take that for granted. Let us not overlook that. God, let us be thankful for it. Please, God, pray for us. Intercede for us that we would walk rooted in Christ and growing in abundance of fruit. God, I thank You that You know every soul in this room by name. And that even right now, God, You know their struggles. You know where they are groaning. You know where they're frustrated or sad, afraid, bewildered. I pray, God, that You would meet them, intercede for them, and God, set them free. I believe, God, that You were stirring that in our second worship song today. The power of the name of Jesus to set us free. I ask, God, that You would bring freedom in this room to every captive. And if there is anyone here who doesn't know You, God, would right now You open their eyes to salvation and let them cry out to You and ask to be saved. And would You, God, answer that prayer and secure them as Your children. I pray, God, You would help us prepare to take this meal together as believers, to celebrate You. And I ask now that You would address each of us as we look to You. Help us, God, to overcome distraction. Help us to overcome a wandering mind. Or wherever we might be distracted in the next couple of moments, God, help us to reflect and focus so that we can remember Jesus and proclaim His death with joy. In Christ's name, I ask these things. Amen.